Hey there, and welcome to another episode of The Caption Life, a podcast about how comics and pop culture impact life and society, and vice versa. Coming to you from deep in the heart of Texas, I'm Kevin. And from Indianapolis, I am Sean. Before we get started with this episode, please hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on. And follow us on social media under the username at Caps and Life. You can also find out more information and past episodes at thecapsandlife.com. Hey, we are smack dab in the middle of the summer, which also means that's the middle of the summer blockbuster uh, season. There's mm-hmm. been some great movies, some big summer movies uh, come out this summer. The movies are back, to say the least, because we've had some really, really big releases and uh, some more so, some some surprises, some things that uh, kind of leave you leave you guessing. But like overall, movies are back. <laughs> Well, yep. all of all of this and our love for our shared love for movies um, has mm-hmm. led us to uh, revisit a, a topic that we we have or a format show format that we've done before, where we look at back at the the things of our past and we decide was it great or were we eight, <laughs> and we are going to look back at summer blockbusters today, specifically the summer blockbusters or the movies of nineteen ninety one. Yes. Because I turned eight in 1990 and Sean turned eight in 1992. So we split the difference. Uh, and that's where we're going to go with our favorite movies uh, from that year and, mm-hmm. and talk about do they stand the test of time or um, were we just really happy to get to go to a movie theater? <laughs> yes. So, Sean, why don't you set the stage? What is going on in 1991 to prepare us for this trek down memory lane? Yeah, so here are some of the things that happened in the year 1991, just to kind of give you some cultural context when these movies came out. So um, some world events that happened in 1991, Gulf War begun. Um, but then at the end of 1991, the end of Cold War and Soviet Union dissolves as well, too. So for a while, we were actually the United States were in two wars at once. Um, but by the end of 1991, uh, the Cold War ended. In terms of U.S events. Some things that happened was the beating of Rodney King in L.A. that uh, ended up going to uh, court, I think, the next year, and the four officers that were involved were found not guilty, and so that became, that caused the uh, L.A. riots to happen, I think, in 1992, but the event itself mm-hmm. happened in 1991. Uh, the Supreme Court Judge Thurgood Marshall uh, retires, and then he is replaced by Clarence Thomas, who is still uh, on the court, as we know. Uh, Then we also had Jeffrey Dahmer, who is the infamous serial killer, arrested this year as well, too. Uh, 1991 was also a big year for sports. So this was the year that the Pittsburgh Penguins won their first Stanley Cup ever. And I don't know if you re- if you remember this or were aware of this, Kevin, but this was when Mario Lemieux and Yammer Yager was on the Pittsburgh Penguins. And, you know, they set the stage for pretty much uh, making that franchise, you know, successful. So this is the first time they got Stanley Cup. It was also the year that the Chicago Bulls got their first NBA championship with Michael Jordan. Um, Magic Johnson announces that he had HIV and retired from the NBA. And this was also the year that the U.S. Women's Soccer won their first ever World Cup against Norway. In terms of gaming for 1991, Sonic the Hedgehog was released in the U.S. and has sold a million copies in the U.S. and two million worldwide. It was also the year Super Nintendo was released in the U.S., which I remember getting that Super Nintendo that year. So. So I have vivid memories of all of those things, like come to think of it, um, mm-hmm. just because I was kind of starting in on like sports fandom during that time. Mm-hmm. So I remember Super Mario and I remember, uh, yeah, <laughs> I remember the Pittsburgh Penguins and I definitely remember the Chicago Bulls. I mean, Michael Jordan was the reason why mm-hmm. I liked uh, basketball at the time. He was the reason why every kid liked basketball at the time. Yep. Um, and if you and if you say that he wasn't, you're lying to yourself because <laughs> nobody was out there like, I want to grow up to be Isaiah Thomas. Hey, I was um, saying I wanted to be Rick Smith, but I'm also a, a tall white dude like him. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, and he played on the Pacers, too. So exactly. that makes sense for you. Yeah. But I mean, no, everybody wanted to be my, like, everybody. I like Michael Jordan. Yeah. yeah. I mean, everybody did. I mean, I love um, watching him play. I was excited when he made his return to the NBA. Uh, it would kept they kept guessing like when he was going to come back. And his first game back from his retirement, in the NBA was actually against the Indiana Pacers. So we were really excited about that. That's awesome. Yeah. And then I, I definitely remember Sonic the Hedgehog. 
and I definitely remember Super Nintendo. Here is the one time where being a child of divorce has like paid off for me. Mm-hmm. Is that at one parent's house I had a Sega Genesis with Sonic the Hedgehog on it, and mm-hmm. at the other parent's house I had a Super Nintendo. Yeah, um, <laughs> and so that's like the only I see really the only positive I can say that ever came from uh, being a child of divorce. Right. Uh, and then the last thing in 1991 in regards to music, uh, Nirvana released their best-selling album Nevermind in this year. And this was also the year that the lead singer of Queen, Freddie Mercury, announced that he had AIDS and then died the very next day. So so those were the things that happened in 1991. So let's yeah. get right into the movies let's of Let's talk 1991. about movies, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll tell you that when, when I was looking into this and I, I looked up a list and, and we kind of batted some things back and forth, decided mm-hmm. on who was going to talk about what um, – well, we originally talked about 1990, and I looked at the the box office for 1990, um, and just nothing stood out to me. But as I kind of like looked around the early 90s, mm-hmm. um, it was it was kind of a crapshoot for what you were gonna get. I, I'll go back in time a little bit just to, just to clarify what I'm talking about. 1989, classic year for blockbuster films. You had Batman, you mm-hmm. had uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Back to the Future Two, Ghostbusters Two. And two of my personal favorites are very underrated, Turner and Hooch and The Abyss. The Abyss is uh, was a game changer, and it kind of flew under the radar because you know, James Cameron tested out a lot of the camera techniques and the filmmaking techniques that he would use to make other bigger, more successful films. But The Abyss is still, um, still really great. Mm-hmm. You get to 1990, you don't have as many like popcorn kind of flicks, uh, you know, suitable for all ages flicks. Uh, some of the top movies in 1990 were ghost mm-hmm. pretty woman, total recall hunt for the red October and die hard Two. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in 1990, if it's not for the Ninja turtles and Kevin McAllister and home alone, you would not have had um, a lot of like all ages films. Right. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about 1991. 1992 is a little bit better. Batman returns sister act. Uh, Home Alone 2, which I we've talked about on this before. I prefer Home Alone 2 than 1. Um, and then A League of Their Own. And then back to 93, or you on to 93, you're back to almost all um, made-for-grown-ups movies. With outside of number one, which was Jurassic Park, um, you had The Firm, The Fugitive, Sleepless in Seattle, In the Line of Fire, Cliffhanger, and A Few Good Men. Okay? This was, this, like, I guess stands in very sharp contrast to what we have now, where most of those movies from that time period would not get a heavily backed wide release today because most, most, most of them, the studios wouldn't believe they would make money. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very rare um, that you have, especially R rated cinema that is, is super successful because you, you cut your audience in half. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, for me personally, like, and I and I kind of I kind of realized this uh, in in looking back on it. Nineteen ninety six is the Wait, year. So are the, you going through the entire decade? No, no, of- no, no, no. I'm just telling you. Like for for me, nineteen ninety six was the year that defined blockbuster uh, cinema and kind mm-hmm. of shifted how we look at what is going to be a big tentpole release for the summer. In nineteen ninety six, the whole the the all of the top four movies. In 1996, came out during the summer. Mm-hmm. Independence Day was number one. Right. Twister was number two. Mission Impossible was number three, and then The Rock was number four. Right. So you had a you had like a cultural shift of what um, that would become what we expect now, which is franchise pictures, superhero movies, and um, and Disney Pixar animated features. Um, and so, like, like looking back at the the early '90s, specifically for this, like 1991, it was it was an interesting like trip down memory lane, because the more I looked at this year specifically, and I'm glad that we decided to like split the difference. I remember going to the movies to see these films that we're going to talk about, and so like yep, it was it was a <laughs> it was a big thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that we're gonna we're gonna touch on, I guess, the top ten overall at the end of our discussion, but do you want to, before we get started with our picks, the ones that we remember most fondly, do you want to talk about some of our honorable mentions? 
Yeah. So uh, just as Kevin said, we talked a little bit ahead of time of what our picks were in terms of our top three for each one. And so there was a lot of movies that came out in 1991 are really good. And it was really hard for us to whittle down to just three each. So we wanted to take a moment to recognize some of the other movies that we thought were really great and just didn't make it on our list, but we want to at least mention them here just for the sake of going down, you know, nostalgic lane and remembering some of these movies. So this was the year that the Adams family came out. This was also Ernest Scared Stupid, which I absolutely love that movie as a kid. We always watch it around Halloween, right? Mm-hmm. Did you do the same thing? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't think that I ever watched Ernest Scared Stupid. Um, okay. I have seen some of the Ernest movies, but specifically like The Addams Family, uh-huh. I, 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 you know, it was a TV show, right? So this was a, rem- a remake or an update of the TV show. And I, I'd never seen the TV show, but I loved the, um, I loved the movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and like looking back on it, I'm like, I remember, um, Christopher Lloyd as, uh, uncle Fester. Right. And Christopher Lloyd was a huge freaking movie star between 1985 and like 1992. Oh yeah. Like yeah. he has a like, resume back to the future who framed Roger rabbit. And then the Adams family, like he was just like hit man after hit after hit after hit. Right. Yeah. The Adams family is where, uh, Christina Ritchie, I think had her breakout role. Mm-hmm. And I remember having a huge crush on her when, when I saw her in Adams <laughs> family. So yeah. Naked Gun two and a half, the smell of fear. So that is the sequel to the Naked Gun that starred Leslie Nielsen and then Star Trek six, the undiscovered country, which was the sixth and final film for the cast of the original series in the movie franchise that they had, which was a really good one as well, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, City Slickers, which starred Bill. Billy Crystal, uh, Daniel Stern, um, and I can't remember. John the, uh, Lovett. No, no he was in, in the, the second one. Oh. Yeah, he didn't show up in the first one. He showed up in the second one. Yeah. Um, I right. can't remember. I mean, that the the third person that was in there, like I, that's the only time I've ever seen him in anything with City Slickers. So I can't remember who oh, it I was. Oh, I bet you it's Ruben, it's Ruben Blades. That might be who it is, yeah. Yes, it, yeah. And then and Jack Palance. Who Jack famously, Palance was in it. Yes. Yeah. Was, in both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even though he died in the first one, which is crazy <laughs> how they re- rewrote it. But uh, oh, it makes sense. Yeah. I, I remember that really being my first exposure to like adult comedy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like comedy made for grownups. Yeah. Uh, and it was still there's still some slapstick moments in there. Mm-hmm. But like uh, there's a there's a like I guess you you get exposed to these things a little bit at a time like who Robin Williams is outside of being the genie who um, Billy Crystal is outside of you know Mike Wazowski and things like that mm-hmm. so these these characters these the, these actors and comedians that I've like I've idolized my entire life th- this was one of the first things that I remember um, of Billy of Billy Crystal and then of course as I got a little bit older I went back and watched some of the things that he was in from the 80s right yeah and then the last movie we had on the list as an honorable mention was the last boy scout. Yeah. The, um, the, and that was one that I didn't see until much later, but it still holds up as one of my favorite, like buddy cop movies. We skipped one on the list, beauty and the beast. Oh yep, yeah, We did. Yes. Beauty and beast, and, which is a huge one for Disney. Cause this was the first animated film to get nominated for best picture for the Oscars, but did win best picture for the golden globes. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. want to know what I remember most about going to see Beauty and the Beast? What's that? It was it was like high art. Like it was like a spectacle and it was the first movie I ever remember going to see at night. Like yeah. my parents wanted to see it enough that they were going to not like pay the, the cheaper matinee price that mm-hmm. we went to see it at night. Yeah. Yeah. The um, the scene where they're doing the, you know, the uh, titular song Beauty and the Beast, that scene had a lot of really great animation because of all the um, effects that they had in there with like the, the lighting and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what really, you know, made it stand out uh, from the other animations because it looked almost lifelike in terms of how they, you know, how, how it was drawn and everything. Yeah. So, a lot of the, a lot of the sets were um, computer generated for the first time. Right. Yeah. They spent a lot of, 
um, you know, time and money into using those. And, and what's interesting is that the person who wrote Beauty and the Beast actually, um, the, I'm sorry, that wrote the music for Beauty and the Beast, if I remember correctly, he was a graduate of uh, Indiana University. And I think he ended up dying before they found out about the awards mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, Alan Menken. Yeah. 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 Exactly. There's a great, there's a great, uh, documentary on, um, him in, uh, Disney Plus. Uh, on Disney Plus. Yep. Yep. So, um, yeah, man, the, it was, and, it, and it's, it was like, uh, right there on the, I, you know, Disney had a really, really hot run with, uh, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and mm-hmm. then the Lion King. A lot of us, a lot of the people that are our age refer to that as the golden age of, of, uh, of Disney animation, but. Oh, yeah. Well, because that, that was, that was, uh, that was like, you know, the, the breakout because they haven't really made a like blockbuster animated film, I think since the late sixties or maybe early seventies. Mm-hmm. So there was like a long gap where they didn't really make any, um, you know, blockbuster animated movies for a while. So. Yeah, they had a, a very long, um, uh, they had a dry run in the eighties, especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, Howard Ashman is the is the um, the com- the musical composer. Alan Menken oh, also yeah. worked on this, but I was thinking of uh, Howard Ashman. It is Howard. Yeah, yeah. He. Yeah. Yep. I should. Well, I should have known that because. Um, yeah, because him being an IU graduate, yeah. so that's right. Yeah, when you say Alan, Alan Menken, Menken, I was like, I was like, it's- Alan. I wasn't wrong, but that was the other guy. Alan Menken is the right. composer. Howard Ashman is the um, the lyricist. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So we, I don't want to get anybody in the message boards. <laughs> so, you know what? I'll go first and talk about my first, uh, was it great? But were we eight, uh, picture and, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it, I, it's a love it or you hate it one. And that is, uh, Robin hood, Prince of thieves. Mm-hmm. And I remember, uh, growing up, uh, in, in Brazoria County, there was a, theater in late Jackson, Texas called the Lake theater. And it used to be like an actual theater where like they would do stage shows and whatnot. But at some point when that became less popular, they converted it into uh, a movie theater. So it was super kind of old school Um, is definitely like the theater you remember as like a, as a kid with Mm -hmm. like the, um, like the marquee that they had to put like the individual letters up on, like now showing and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I remember going to see that movie uh, as a kid and absolutely, absolutely loving it because yeah. of the swashbuckling adventure. Now, like looking back on it, when I was nine, when I or mm-hmm. almost nine, when I saw this, it didn't bother me that that Kevin Costner didn't have a British accent. And well, when you're a kid, you're not paying attention to those no, things. No, you're not. <laughs> you're not. Yeah. Um, and I absolutely loved. Um, Alan Rickman as the sheriff of Nottingham mm-hmm. high point of the movie. Yep. There were so many, like so much of the action set pieces between uh, like the way that they robbed people in Sherwood forest mm-hmm. uh, to the launching of the, the Azim and Kevin uh, Robin hood over the wall. And he's like, F me. He cleared it. That was like the first time I'd heard a, a F word in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I, I the, every single one of those characters, I love those characters like Will Scarlet and Azim, and like mm-hmm. it's to me like you can't you I don't I will not stand for somebody besmirching that one. <laughs> yeah, well, this movie uh, was really interesting. First of all, when I was a kid, I loved this movie as well too, and I actually remember vividly. Um, I think I either got it for my birthday or for Christmas. I got the uh, Nerf version of the. The the archery set that came that was mm-hmm. themed, you know, the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. I remember having it out in the garage and like shooting at targets and stuff. And I thought it was like so fantastic and so cool that it felt like Robin Hood. And what I thought was interesting about this movie overall is that this is one of the few times we don't see a Prince John in the mm-hmm. movie. And it introduces uh, Hazim, which I don't think has ever been introduced before. And now that tends to be almost like a staple character in some of the later Robin Hood uh, movies that we see as well, too. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and I'm not sure like where that idea came from. Um, but 
you know, if, if you know the story of Robin Hood, like the legend and everything like that, I think it's really interesting um, thinking of that approach of adding a new character to the legend because looking back at the history of it, the legend of Robin Hood was actually a separate story than Maid Marian and Friar Tuck, uh, Friar Tuck, who were legends that were kind of connected to Robin Hood, but they were like separate and they were only really heard of in France at the time. And so mm-hmm. as the legend evolved, they actually just combined those stories. And so originally there probably wasn't made, there wasn't a Maid Marian or Friar Tuck and the actual historical person, but those legends got combined together. So I thought it was interesting that now we have Hazim and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and that tends to be a character that shows up in later movies now. Yeah. Uh, do you remember who played King Richard at the end of that movie? Sean Connery. Yeah. <laughs> such a such a great cameo. Yes. Well, uh, then, and then the odd, uh, you know, I got to give Maid Marian a kiss, which, you know, and um, uh, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, they, you know, spoofed that by having Patrick Stewart make yeah. out with Maid Marian in that yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> And 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 speaking of uh, Men in Tights, also a classic film. Uh, I, I, Aziz, as he's called, yeah, <laughs> um, uh, in that movie, because I always did you say a sneeze? Um, <laughs> was Dave Chappelle like the first, uh, like the first, like on screen uh, uh, Dave Chappelle that we got? So, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. You, I, if I were going to say, was it great or where we ate? Um, I'm probably, if I watched it today, there'd be some things that we were like, like don't hold up as much, but like, you know, the, the first person perspective arrow shots and things like that, man, it was, it was a game changer. So how could you not say it was great? Oh, this, yeah. The cinematography in that yeah. movie was fantastic. Like you got some great shots of, you know, when they were building the fortress and, um, in the forest, you know, there were some really great visuals with the arrow spinning around and, and things like that. Like there is a lot of stuff that was just really groundbreaking. I don't want to say groundbreaking, but was definitely visually appealing. That was very different than what you've seen before. Yeah. That I think just, you know, launched the idea of having Robin Hood movies as a popular movie again, because I don't think we had anything since the animated version that was, you know, as successful as this no. one was. And I think no. it's, it's a lot well, of even the animated, the story. even the animated one was a flop going back to what we talked about with Disney. Like mm-hmm. it was like, we all remember it fondly, but it wasn't successful when it came out. Right. Yeah. So, so what I was saying earlier was that, well, I can't remember what I was saying earlier. So never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it you were right though it's it 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 changed it, it added a new layer to films of that type through through technology and stuff that we hadn't had before right yep all right what's the first right. on your list buddy so for me in 1991 one of my top 3 movies is the movie hook which is about peter pan who's grown up um it was directed by steven spielberg and the cast consists of Dustin Hoffman as Captain Hook, Robin Williams as Peter Pan, Julia Roberts as Tinkerbell, and Bob Hoskins as Smee. And this was just a you know fantastic movie overall because of the visuals, the new story, and the twist that they add on to this that we haven't really you know heard or watched before. And so this was a Peter Pan film, but you know with uh, new characters and new adventures and things like mm-hmm. that as well too. So as I was looking up the you know history behind hook and and some of the things that happened with the movie there, here's a few things that i learned from my research that i thought would be really interesting that i want to share with you and our audience here so okay apparently this film was where robin williams and steven spielberg met for the first time and they became really good friends after this um and what was interesting about this is that i guess steven spielberg was actually really disappointed how the movie came out because it wasn't what he wanted necessarily but after robin williams passed away he wanted to rewatch the movie but you know apparently he couldn't because in the middle of the movie he just cried for hours you know because of him grieving for robin williams but afterwards he said that he was actually thankful for the movie because that's actually how they met so even though he was disappointed how it came out he's actually really happy with it now so so that's how they met and became really good friends um apparently Julia Roberts was actually really difficult on set for this movie. Have you heard about Ooh, that at all? I have not. 
So apparently the name that they gave her on set was Tinker Hell. <laughs> oh. Yeah. And apparently, and, and I kind of get this because apparently a lot of her scenes, like she was actually on her own. Like she didn't act with a lot of people because she was, you know, doing a lot of stuff on green screen because they had to shrink her down and all that. So I guess, you know, she just had a hard time in that kind of solitude working environment. Um, but she did get nominated for a Razzie Award for Worst Supporting Actress. Um, but what I found really interesting about her involvement with this movie is that it actually she actually almost put the production in jeopardy because she was supposed to get married to Kiefer Sutherland and apparently you know they called it off or something like that and she fled California and went to Ireland to avoid the press and Spielberg actually threatened to fire her to she didn't return but I found it interesting that her life kind of sounds like Runaway Bride that she was in <laughs> later on, right? So I wonder if that's where they got the inspiration from. So. Yeah, and Notting Hill as well. Like, yeah, <laughs> like that's the that's her character in Notting Hill. So, yeah. uh, did you did you know that Carrie Fisher was involved in this film too? No. Yeah, so apparently she actually was involved with a lot of the writing, um, or at least rewriting. She didn't get credit for it, but she was asked to kind of help write and edit the final script, and a lot of it was Tinkerbell lines. Um, but she was actually in the movie very briefly. She played one of the two uh, people who were a couple on the bridge that when Tinkerbell like flew by and the fairy dust fell on them, they started floating away. She was one of those people, and oh, apparently, wow. apparently, it was in their credit as like kissing couple, and the other person was George Lucas. Mm. Yeah, so I, d- I do remember Phil Collins played the inspector. Yes, uh, at the beginning of the movie, because uh, I was a big like Phil Collins and Genesis fan, and so like he had this brief cameo in the movie, and it was like way bigger deal to me than. It was to anybody else. <laughs> yes, I remember that briefly, but I mean, yeah, that's I hold on it wasn't to that a little, highlight for me though. So no, I hold on to that little bit of like closely guarded like Phil Collins trivia with with everything I've got. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna do with my next one. I'm gonna give you my number one, my most most revered 1991 movie, and okay. then when we come back around to me. I want to talk about two movies that are very closely related. And what they mean for cinema history, but um, the next one that I wanted to share, and I'm probably I'm probably sure you you love it too, and that is the Rocketeer. Yes, the Rocketeer <laughs> uh, was instant classic gold for me mm-hmm. um, because this was around the time that I had discovered comics and and superheroes, um, and the idea of like a, like this average Joe pilot guy finding this rocket suit just seemed like the funnest thing in the world. Like everybody wanted um, Mm -hmm. a rocket suit like that. And um, I'm fairly certain that the way they produced this movie was like, who knows if this is going to be a hit. They didn't put a lot of like budget behind it. Right. And Disney has plans to, to update it. But um, the the characters are all very um, like, what's the word I'm looking for? They're they're very colorful. Like um, Billy Campbell's got the boyish charm down. Right. Uh, Timothy Dalton as the as the villain mm-hmm. is uh, coming off of playing Bond twice and mm-hmm. just chews up the scenery and his like his Nazi like the the. Um, Nazi film star that he's playing. Mm-hmm. And then um, Jennifer Connelly. Oh my goodness. This yes. movie came out 30 <laughs> years ago. And if you've seen Top Gun Maverick, she doesn't look like she's aged a day. Yep. Agreed. And yeah. um, classic 1930s, 1940s pinup beauty. Um, <laughs> but, but they gave her, um, they gave her, you know, substance. Uh, she's not just the damsel in distress. And so, like the like the whole thing is great, and it's got some pedigree to it because uh, Joe Johnson directed it. He had previously directed uh, "Honey, I Shrunk the Kids." Mm-hmm. He would go on to direct um, Jurassic Park three, and then later on, he would direct uh, Captain America: The First Avenger for Marvel. So mm-hmm. he's been around a lot. He does he does some great work. Um, but the Rocketeer, I mean, I. Uh, I have the Rocketeer. I actually had some of the the Robin Hood action figures when I was a kid. Yeah, but I still to this day, me too. Have, yeah, uh, the Rocketeer up on my up on my wall. And interesting enough, I don't know if you knew this, Sean, 
the Rocketeer seems like it's been around forever because it's this 1930s like pulp comic book hero, right? Right. He wasn't created until the 80s. Right. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. and since since but it was I a rewatched comic first though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Since I rewatched it on um on Disney Plus, I went back and I bought some of the trades, the the original Dave Stewart trades mm-hmm. um for the Rocketeer. Right. Yeah, good yeah, stuff. I mean, Cl- classic kind of like you know swashbuckling adventure stuff. Yeah, well, and I remember watching that movie as a kid, and I, I think what was so great about the Rocketeer is that it didn't have any like real huge uh, following before the movie, Mm-mm. at least not in pop culture, and that it just did so well in the movie theaters that it was just such a cool idea and like a really great story that they told with it. And, and for me personally, one of the things I remember growing up, um, you know, in addition to watching the Rocketeer and loving that movie is that growing up, we went to Disney world and Disney world, um, at that time had a, um, area. I, I forget which park it was. It was probably a magic kingdom or Epcot or one of those two, but, um, they had an area called, um, Toontown, and they had, you know, little sets from different movies that they had. And part of it was having that bulldog restaurant that they had um, in Toontown. I remember going by that and loving it and thought it was so cool that I thought that we were actually at the place where Rocketeer took place. You know, because when you're a kid, you don't realize that these are sets and these are like all made up and all that. But when you see it like in real life, you think you're actually at the place where the movie happened, you know. So, yeah. Right. And I, I think the, the, the thing that you mentioned about it not being as well known, I think that was like Disney, Disney purchased the film rights from, uh, Dave Stevens. I said Dave Stewart earlier, Dave Stevens, Mm -hmm. who, um, created the character and wrote and illustrated the comics in the eighties, uh, like hoping that they could catch lightning in a bottle. Mm -hmm. Um, and the movie was successful. It just wasn't successful enough to start. A franchise like they were hoping right and i it's he's a great character cliff secord the rocketeer it's all it's it was a great film and whenever they decide to um revisit it i i look forward to it yeah all right so the next movie on my list and this is probably my favorite of all of them in 1991 is the sequel to the movie that came out the year prior Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. That's correct. Yes. And that's, I, to, to me, it's also one of, the, one of the great sequels of all time. Stands up as good as the original. Yes, yes. So this, uh, this had a brand new April O'Neil. So this is a different one from the original one, mm-hmm. uh, Paige Turco. And um, a, a lot of other people that is in the cast are not as well known, um, mm-hmm. except for Ernie Reyes Jr., who we also know, um, you know, played one of the characters in Surf Ninjas. It's also a cult classic. Um, and then Kevin Nash, who's really well known as a wrestler, he actually played Super Shredder in this movie. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And so here, here are some like quick facts that I came across about the movie as I was researching this. So um, apparently the character Kino was created specifically for Ernie Reyes Jr. So he wasn't a character from the comics and it's still not a character from the comics. They never wrote him like in like retroactively like what DC did for Harley Quinn. So he is only shown up in this movie and that's the only place that you'll find him at. But I guess he was actually Donatello's fight double in the original movie and the producer liked him so much that they wrote a character for him to be in the movie to replace Casey Jones, which apparently, Mm -hmm. um, what I also found interesting about this movie and, and, and actually found interesting about the franchise as well, too, is that I guess when Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out in 1990, the first movie, a lot of parents apparently thought that it was really dark and violent for kids. So <laughs> apparently for this second movie, which, which I, I got to say, I find interesting because I actually text my parents earlier today to ask them, you know, did they, did they think that the movie was too violent for me growing up? And my mom's like, no, why? So I thought it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. But but they it, that surprises me to hear that, too. Yeah. Yeah. So so I don't know what it was about that, but apparently they replaced Casey Jones because he was ultra. He was, you know, really violent in the original Mm -hmm. movie, as some parents thought he was. Um, The fighting was toned down significantly in this second Mm -hmm. movie because of that. So when you watch the um, sequel, um, they don't use their weapons for most of the film. Like they use it every once in a while, but Mm -hmm. they actually don't use their weapons. It's just hand to hand combat for the most part. Um 
And because of that, they also had their fight scenes with just pretty much a one and done hit when they fought the Foot Clan. So anytime you watch them, they would just either punch or kick a uh, Foot Clan soldier and they would go down immediately <laughs> because they were trying to tone down the, you know, the violent aspect that people mm-hmm. were uh, complaining about at that time. So I, I found that really interesting. It, it surprises me to hear that because I don't remember the controversy like I don't remember it being overly violent, but I do kind of remember like um, a few years earlier when masters of the universe came out Mm -hmm. um, that they had to specify that like the, the soldiers that fought for Skeletor in that movie were Mm -hmm. androids because her, uh, sorry, he man is shooting them with a laser gun and they're like, if he's murdering all these people with this laser gun, right. like that's ultraviolet. So let's make them robots, yeah. so that so that they're they're he's not killing people. Right. But um, you know, people were fine with Star Wars when it came out. <laughs> well, that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then another really interesting thing about this movie is that apparently the Ninja Turtle creators Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird did not want Shredder to be in this movie. Apparently, what was happening was that the producer wanted this uh, movie to be very much like the cartoon show, which makes sense because mm-hmm. that's what you know made the franchise really popular. Uh, not that the comics weren't popular, but you know when it became a cartoon show, it just became popular, you know, for a lot more kids and a lot more mm-hmm. families. Um, and so the producers wanted it to be more like the cartoon show, and the creators actually wanted to get away from it and try to get more to be um, coming, bringing things in from the comics. So they wanted to bring in like. Baxter and the Mausers and stuff like that, but the producers ultimately won out and they decided to bring Shredder back into the second movie. So, but I thought that was interesting that they didn't want Shredder in the second movie and they wanted to like bring in other characters from uh, the comics. I guess they also talked about bringing in Rat King at one point. Okay. Yeah. I so. I remember kind of being afraid of Toka and Razor. <laughs> um, I love them. I yeah, because they, they were like they were kind of scary. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like as I get older, I realize that they were just like Muppets, like they were, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and yeah. so like all of that stuff uh, sits differently with me now. Um, yeah. Maybe it was you that shared it online recently, but maybe I saw it on Reddit. Have you seen the explanation for why the Ninja Turtles have the weapons that they have? Uh, you mean like why they have like the size and the nunchucks and all that? Yeah. So like, um, I, I, you know, I used to know this. I, m- I remember coming across so I can't this remember one time. I saw it recently, but okay. So yeah. Raphael is the most hot headed. So he uses the Psy, uh, which is a mostly defensive uh, weapon. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, Michelangelo's is the, the clown and whatnot. So he, he master uh, splinter gave him the nunchucks because it, you forces you to focus because the nunchucks are famous for hurting the person who's wielding them. Okay. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And that, uh, Donatello was the, was the, was the genius mm-hmm. and, uh, having to fight with just the wooden stick would give him humility. Mm-hmm. And then, um, Leonardo is the one that carries the swords because he's the most, uh, he's the leader and the most level headed and the sword being as dangerous as, as it is. If he would ever have to like take a life, they wanted Leonardo to be the one that could that could manage it. So it, right. looking back on it, it was a very interesting explanation. I mean, I don't know if it's yeah. real, it's just a fan theory, but like it, it totally <laughs> checks out to me. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting. So a couple of things real quick is what's interesting is that everyone, you know, and I said the same thing. Everyone said that Leonardo had katanas, but I guess technically he didn't have katanas. What he had was called ninjados. And that katana was actually a very specific stylized type of sword that he never actually had mm. in the comics. But I guess, you know, katana was something that's a little bit more uh, familiar and easier to say. So I'm sure that's probably why they just called it that. Um, but you had talked about how um, how um, the two villains in there that we just talked Toka about. Toka and Razor. Thank you. Toka and Razor, um, who, you know, were just looked like they were, you know, puppets and all that. Mm-hmm. All. You know, the Ninja Turtles costuming actually came from Jim Henson's Mm -hmm. uh, costume shop. And so um, so I thought that was a really cool connection that they had in there of uh, Jim Henson. And I guess this film was actually dedicated to Jim Henson because he had died the year before. So, yeah. 
Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, this is one of my favorite movies growing up, and and absolutely love the Ninja Turtles. I mean, they're you know one of the um, you know franchises I got real, that I really got into when I was a kid, and absolutely you know looked up to them and and loved everything about Ninja Turtles. And so this was definitely my number one movie for 1991. Can you do the Ninja rap? I did at one point, and I think that time has passed. <laughs> go ninja, go ninja, go, yep. go ninja, yep. go ninja. And go. everybody yeah. played that song on the on the disc man, the walk man with the oh, anti skip yeah. button on there. Yeah, <laughs> anti skip. All right, okay. So my third one is not one movie; it's two movies, and it's an interesting like time capsule for mm-hmm. uh, American cinema that happened thirty plus years ago, mm-hmm. but. Do you realize that on consecutive weekends in July of 1991, uh, I want to say it's the 12th. On the 12th of July, 1991, Point Break came out. Mm -hmm. And the following weekend, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey came out. So two super important Keanu Reeves films that that came out in consecutive weeks, which by today's standards seems crazy. That you'd mm-hmm. have a movie star in, in a movie two weekends in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, but launched, like, I mean, he was already he was already a movie star, but, like, seriously, like, launched him into the career that he's had now for 30-plus right. for years. And it's it's ebbed and flowed, you, you know, for Point Break and then Speed. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got, you know, some of the things that weren't so great. And then, of course, here recently, the, the, John, the John Wick franchise. But... Right. 1991 gave us the Keanu Reeves that we that we know and love. And um, looking back on it, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, like at the time, I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. It's not super good. <laughs> uh, I watched it a few years ago because Madden fell in love with Bill and Ted. And uh-huh. there's two instances in that movie where Keanu Reeves himself uses a very derogatory F word um, that... Mm. Because of the times, oh, it was thrown, yeah. al- thrown around a lot differently than... Then would be acceptable today, right? Yeah. Um, and then um, Point Break is cheesy, but <laughs> but it's directed by Catherine Bigelow, who would go on to um, win an Oscar for uh, what's the the bomb movie? I should know the, this. The, you said the Bond movie, Goldeneye. The bomb movie, the movie where Jeremy Renner plays a bomb disposal. Um, oh, Hurt Locker. Hurt Locker. Yeah, that's yeah, what it yeah. is. The Hurt Locker. Um, and then, and then zero dark 30 was a big hit for her after that. Right. Um, so like it's got, it's, I mean, and it, it established Keanu Reeves as a superstar. Uh, it established, um, Patrick Swayze, you know, made, he was already a heartthrob, but he spent most of that movie shirtless and it just solidified his <laughs> stance there with the, you know, with the blonde hair and the beard and everything. And mm-hmm. the extreme sports, I mean, come on, the nineties were like the, ex- the extreme sports, like prime time. And Tony Hawk, what was for for skateboarding, Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze were for um, for surfing and skydiving. So I, right. it's it's part of it's part of the pop cultural like echelon from back then. And I right. just think it was interesting that it came. Those two movies came out two weekends in a row. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. I don't think you hear about that very often. I mean, it still happens, but not not very often. So, yeah. All right, so my last movie is, this is a very nostalgic movie for me, and I have a fond memory of this specifically because I had a stuffed animal when I was a kid of the main character from this movie that I absolutely loved. It was one of my favorites. I remember I had it um, you know, for a long time just because I absolutely loved this movie as well. And this was an American tale, Fievel Goes West. You remember that movie? I do remember that movie, and I remember yes. it fondly. Yeah. So, well, and, and this is one where um, I love this one, you know, more than the first one because mm-hmm. I think the first one was dark, and this second one just seemed like it was a lot um, friendlier. I think kid friendly than the first one was. But this actually had a pretty interesting um, cast in here because it has James Stewart mm-hmm. um, in here who played uh, Wiley, and I think he was supposed to be Wyatt Earp. So I think his full mm-hmm. name was Wiley Burp. Um, John Cleese was in it. 
And John Lovitz was in it as well, too. So this actually had a really interesting cast here. Um, and what I thought was interesting about this movie, um, again, when I did some research on this, is that this was James Stewart's final film before mm-hmm. he passed away. Uh, John Cleese apparently was offered the role of Cogsworth in Beauty and the Beast, but he turned it down because he wanted to do this movie. And this was actually his debut film for voice acting as well, too, which impressive. Um, I mean, Beauty and the Beast definitely, you know, beat it out. But I think John Cleese did a fantastic job in this one that, you know, I I think he probably made the right decision for that. Mm -hmm. Um, This was also another Steven Spielberg film. I don't think he directed this one, but he definitely produced it. Yeah. Um, And there was a scene. Don Bluth is the Five Goes West. And that's an interesting history, too, because Don Bluth was an animator at Disney. Right. And then he broke away from from them. And right. the first movie that he made that wasn't Disney was uh, An American Tale, and it right. beat one of their films at the box office, and it starred a mouse, which was which was ironic. But yeah, like he he was a great great animator and film director, and the, his style is very um, it's very noticeable. Right. Yeah, but I don't think Don Bluth was in this movie though. I don't think no, he, he was involved the, with this he was one. the di- the director. He wasn't the director of. Uh, no. five he he oh. was for the first movie, but I okay. think he and Steven Spielberg actually had um, a disagreement, something like that. And so he broke off of this. But this was actually directed by uh, Phil Nibblink and Simon Wells. Oh, wow. So yeah. I learned something every day. <laughs> but but you're right. Don Bluth did do the first movie, though. Okay. So he was involved in that. But he, he broke away and, and was involved in the second one. So, um. But there was a scene in this movie where Fievel was riding on the tumbleweed and you hear the song, uh, the theme from Rawhide. And it's actually the Blues Brothers version <laughs> of the song. And apparently that was in there because Spielberg had a cameo in the movie Blues Brothers as well. So that I thought that was a really interesting connection that they had. And this was released the same day as Beauty and the Beast. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> Which was really interesting, you know, thing about it. And I don't know if, if, you know, like at that time, if they knew, you know, like how big either one of those movies were going to be. But we know that, you know, Beauty and the Beast ended up being, you know, one of the best movies of that year. So, but yeah, it came mm-hmm. out the same, uh, the same weekend. So, yeah. I, what I remember about that movie is watching it, um, I guess, probably not long after it came out, but all, over the course of the next few years, several times, because I had brothers who were a lot younger than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and doing the Wiley burp impression um, <laughs> and not realizing that that was a Jimmy Stewart impression yes, um, because he had had such a uh, long and illustrious career in Hollywood. And he was well known for the, for the, the way that he um, spoke. Uh, and then Wiley burp was exaggeration uh, of that. <laughs> um, right. And yeah. it was, you know, these are things that you don't realize as a kid that you learn, that you learn later in life. Oh, that's the guy from uh, It's a Wonderful Life, and Mr. Yeah. Smith goes to Washington. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so we did, we both did um, our top three movies of the year. I thought I would just quickly um, share with everybody what were the top 10 movies in terms of the worldwide grossing movies of that year. Mm-hmm. And so I'll just, I'll just go ahead and do this real quick. Um, and this is worldwide, so it's not domestic or U.S. This is, you know, global, um, you know, box office. So number one, which is not surprising, is Beauty and the Beast that earned over $248 million worldwide. Second was Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which earned uh, over $204 million. And it's actually, um, I don't know if it is to this day, but one of the most successful um, sequels in mm-hmm. any franchise. Um, the third is your favorite, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which was, mm-hmm. which had a um, little over $165 million. Number four, Silence of the Lambs, which I thought was actually an older movie, but I guess it came out this year. Um, it earned $130 million. Mm-hmm. February of that year. So, See, that mm-hmm. was one of the first times that like a movie that came out that early in the year would mm-hmm. go on to be successful at the award season. Because if you release a movie at that time of the year, a lot of times uh, they for, people have forgotten about it, but it was, it stayed in the public consciousness. Right. 
Number five was City Slickers at over $124 million. Number six was Hook at $119 million. Seven is The Adams Family at $113 million. Number eight is Sleeping with the Enemy at $101 million. Number nine is Father of the Bride, which earned uh, about $89 million. And then in 10th was The Naked Gun, two and a half, The Smell of Fear at $86 million. So, Yeah, how things have changed. Like if a movie... If a movie made a hundred million dollars today, like mm-hmm. it, it probably wouldn't be like deemed as successful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for, for a lot of reasons, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, things have gotten more expensive, so I wonder adjusted for inflation what those numbers look like. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure either. So, but yeah, I want to I want to revisit this topic uh, at some point soon with some with some guests mm-hmm. and and talk about our favorite year for movies. Like if mm-hmm. you go, if you could go back in time and you had to live with the movies that came out of that year, um, what year would you choose? But since mm-hmm. we're talking about 1991, let's wrap it up on this, Sean. Okay. If you had to pick one to watch, and you got to watch it at least once a day, every day for the rest of your life, which one would it be? Uh, it's it's got to be Hook, and and this is why. I love Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles too, and it's still my favorite over Hook. Mm-hmm. But I will say two things: is one. Hook is still iconic uh, it, culturally, I think, for us and and has a lot of um, significance, I think, cinematography, but also um, for storytelling. And the fact that, you know, Robin Williams is in it and he just did a phenomenal job of playing Peter Pan. I think it's just a really unique and interesting story that I would love to watch that every day. But the second reason is I love Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles too, but I just cannot listen to Ninja Rap every day. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was thinking too, it. like, do I go pedigree? Do I yeah. go pedigree and say um, Beauty and the Beast? Um, right. Because, like, I without a doubt, right now, if you flip that movie on, I could sing every word to every song mm-hmm. because it is iconic. But I think of after about a week, I would. Um, have driven myself insane. So I'll stick right. with the one that I talked about earlier, and that's the Rocketeer, just because. Yeah. Um, it it to me it's it's a it kind of just harkens back to a different era of uh of movie making and mm-hmm. and a different kind. I love those kind of like old school action adventure films, um, and especially like the B team superhero films, uh, comic book hero films of the of the nineties that we can explore in a future episode. But, mm-hmm. but it just, it's like I said, it's solid gold for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, Oh yeah. All right. Well, that is a great discussion. I love movies and I, <laughs> I could, I could sit here and talk about movies like all the time. Um, we could, we could start a brand new podcast where we just like revisit movies from, from our past. Um, oh, yeah. but the spinoff show. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? Maybe, maybe the reason that I, I, I uh, got into being a teacher so that I could make sure that I could go to summer, summer movies and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, because it's one of the things I look forward to every year. It's like, like late April, like rolls around and there's like the first big release in May coming out. And I'm like, yeah, we get, we get this Marvel film and then this Harry Potter film and then this, this film and then this franchise like this, this and every year it's like, Oh yeah, 2016 is going to be the year for like the best year for movies ever. Oh man, 2018 is even better. Wait till 2019. Like it just (laughs) one after the other. And I always look forward to it. So summer blockbuster season is definitely, um, definitely big. Uh, and of course, by the time this episode comes out on the 15th of July, we will have, Hopefully the biggest summer blockbuster uh, of, of the season, Thor, Love and Thunder, uh, to talk about. Uh, so, so look for that. But this is where we're going to jump off the nostalgia train today. That wraps up another episode of the Caption Live podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Please don't forget to smash that subscribe button on whatever major podcast platform you listen to. You can also follow us on social media at Caption Life. And if you like what we're doing, give us a shout out. Tag us in your posts. For more info about us and all of our previous episodes, please visit thecaptionlive.com. Until next time, we'll see you at the movies. Ninja! Ninja! Rap.